This week on Bookpile Banter, we meet Martin and discuss mushrooms. Warning, this episode does contain discussions of rape and may be uncomfortable for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Bookpile Banter. This is Amberly with Sarah and our special guest, Martin. Today, we are going to discuss Mexican Gothic. But before we get into that, I'm going to give Martin a chance to introduce himself. So you have the floor. Hi, I'm Martin. I am fairly new to Gothic novels. Uh, my favorite genre is actually uh, science fiction, usually classic stuff. I'm not familiar with a lot of newer books, so it's kind of an opportunity for me to get used to some newer stuff that's been put out. And then Martin will be joining us on occasion, kind of swapping between him and Kim, or both of them, if we're lucky, we'll have all four of us and that'll be sheer chaos. So today we are discussing Mexican Gothic, which is by, again, I'm going to apologize if I say this wrong because I am not great with Spanish names, Silvia Morono Garcia. And this was published back in, or back in, my God, it was published back in 2020. (laughs) (laughs) All that long ago uh, by Del Rey. And just some kind of fun facts about Sylvia is that she is Mexican-Canadian. And then this will actually be turning into a TV show by ABC Signature, and it'll be a limited series run on Hulu. I'm excited for that. I don't know about everyone else being excited about that being turned into a show, but I am. And then for our plot, when her father receives a mysterious letter from her cousin, Noemi is tasked with making sure that Catalina is okay with her new husband in their family home high place. However, upon arriving, Noemi finds the place to be antiquated and falling apart, while the English family continues to hold to their greater-than-thou standards. To save herself and her cousin, Noemi has to uncover the family secret and and plot a way to escape with Catalina before being overpowered by the house and the household. And this is set in 1950s Mexico. As Martin kind of touched on, this is a gothic genre, but it's kind of fun because it's Latin American gothic genre. So what did you guys think of the book? I really liked it. Like I said, this is kind of my first foray into to gothic, certainly modern gothic. I thought it had a lot of very interesting takes on the genre from what I understand of the genre. But yeah, no, I, I really enjoyed it. Sarah? Uh, yeah, I enjoyed it more than I thought I would, especially when I was halfway through and I thought things were going to go much things were going to go you know terribly and it actually did not but yeah I don't think I've read gothic books before don't really know but yeah this one was pretty enjoyable so why were you afraid of it going terrible in the middle it just well okay so you know gothic I've watched the Netflix shows the Blythe Manor or whatever and And Haunting of Hill House other one yeah yeah, but more Blythe Manor was like really disappointing in the way that it went. And so I just kind of felt like this was going to be the kind of book where it's like everything goes wrong and then continues to go wrong. And then it's just like a very unsatisfying ending, especially when you get attached to certain characters. And then it's like, I don't want to see them die or get like horribly cursed or something. So I'd rather not finish it. But then I did. and It was fine. So for clarification, because I know this because Sarah and I were talking as she was reading through it and she did the pause. Uh, she she likes Francis, <laughs> which he's one of my favorite characters, too. I absolutely adored Francis in this. And he's that weird, like, 
is he a bad guy and with the household or is he not? And does he need to be saved? And, and I, yeah, <laughs> I definitely, I remember the first time I read it through, I was like, oh, if they do anything to baby Francis, not literal baby, but my baby Francis. <laughs> I will not be happy. <laughs> what about you, Martin? Did you have a favorite character? <laughs> Lo and behold, yeah, actually, Francis is one of my favorite characters. Um, I thought it was a very interesting take on a uh, male main character. You don't see a lot of um, more bookish uh, uh, kind of uh, male characters. Um, you see it more and more now, I, I feel like, uh, a lot of modern modern uh, literature, but I feel like for the genre, it's fairly new, especially considering it's, it's got very heavy ties in romance. Uh, but no, I thought it was a very interesting take of the character. I've never really been one for, oh, I hope they don't kill this character. Um, I'm actually kind of morbid in that I kind of like when the characters die because then it's sort of done and you don't have to think about <laughs> what's going on afterward. But no, I thought it was, I thought he was a very interesting character. I liked him. Well, and he he's a damsel in distress, oddly enough. I, I think that what, what makes him interesting is she has to save him. He helps her, but it really is Noemi saving him as opposed to, or them working together, as opposed to him being a male hero, you know, hero. I was going to say a male heroine. (laughs) (laughs) A male hero coming in and saving the day. And particularly with this, there's the whole fact that he's trapped by the house. And usually in gothic genre, it's women trapped by a house. So... Normally, we, we explain to Kim kind of what the plot is. And I know I gave the brief synopsis, um, but kind of the non-spoilery synopsis or the spoilery synopsis is uh, Naomi r- arrives to High Place only to discover that Catalina is sick and she doesn't know why. And they claim it's tuberculosis, which 1950s, it's a fair concern. It's survivable, but a concern. And in the process, Naomi starts to feel not sick herself, but things start to go weird. She starts having weird dreams. She thinks she's seeing a ghost. And these these English characters, and this is what makes this book brilliant, these English characters are so weird and obsessed with eugenics. And we have this situation, which is kind of rarer in, say, Victorian Gothic or even American Gothic, where the white people are the problem. <laughs> Usually, I mean, the closest example I can come to is is Lovecraft, and we'll we'll come circle around to that because I'll finish kind of explaining the plot, which is basically Naomi's against the household, and they want to bring her in in order to increase their breeding stock. Um, They've recognized the fact that they can no longer interbreed, which is what they've been doing. And the Howard, the head father, dying, rotting mess that he is, has chosen uh, Naomi to be paired with Francis. And that's because he plans on taking over Francis's body. And that is being done thanks to special mushrooms that are propagating, symbiotic? Symbiotic with his first wife that he sacrificed to them. Uh, Which we'll we'll get into discussing that the weird dynamics that that (laughs) requires and how that works in the Gothic. So basically the, the culmination of all of this is they have to burn down the house to escape they have to to kill the entire family and run away with Catalina 
Naomi and Francis. Francis does survive, much to Sarah's relief. Uh, which you, when you you messaged me or I messaged you, you're like, oh, you only have page, 50 pages left. And you're like, I, I can't, I can't finish it. I was like, no, Sarah, just, <laughs> I don't want to give it away, but just, just keep going. <laughs> so. Oh, what can we discuss? What do you guys want to discuss first? I feel like there's so much we can. Um, so you kind of uh, you started talking about it a little bit. You got to kind of got into it a little bit. But I thought the um, really early on, uh, Howard kind of touching in on the eugenics, I thought was a very interesting sort of foreshadowing and kind of really played really heavily into the themes of, of the book, which I thought was a very interesting touch, um, kind of really early insight into to some of the, the themes like uh, family and uh, lineage and all that kind of stuff. Um, and sort of starts to hint at, at sort of the underlying um, mystery uh, going on, but with Howard reincarnating and all that kind of stuff. I thought it was a very interesting um, take. And I, very early on, I was picking up on those little themes where I was like, okay, there's something going on here. Well, and I love the fact that, so I've read Latin American literature. I, I am I am white. <laughs> all of us here are discussing it are, are identify as white, right? Confer- yep. yep. I, Sarah's not nodding her head one the other, way or the other. Do you do you identify as white, Sarah? Uh, yes, if you must have that detail about me. Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so keeping that in mind, while we all identify as white, uh, in my English degree for Bachelor of Arts, I did take world literature classes. And one of the world literature classes I took was in Latin American literature. And so what I love about this whole eugenics thing being in there is it really plays into how horrifying white perception can be at times. It plays into that whole, you know, uh, especially considering this is the 1950s, you know, Germany, Holocaust, eugenics studies that were being done. There were even eugenic studies being done in the United States, although they don't discuss this in much, but it was a philosophy that was being considered here. In Great Britain, it was being considered just not maybe quite as transparent or as extreme as it was in Germany. So I love the fact that since this is a Latin American book, instead of it being the horrifying other, the horrifying factor is the majority identifying group that has turned them into a creepy otherness, which I <laughs> I liked that touch, uh, that recognition that in the Latin American community, at some points, Spanish, British, French, just kind of came in and took over. And it was just accepted that they were in control and that it wasn't a good thing. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And in this case, the, the Doyles is the family name, had a silver mine and they just, they controlled this town almost to the point where it couldn't, escape being a small town it could never prosper because they they fucked it up (laughs) how did you feel sarah about the eugenics stuff did it interest you at all not eugenics itself but (laughs) (laughs) yeah you know you know it really got me thinking it got me thinking i was like yep this seems this seems legit uh no i don't know it was interesting but i don't know at a certain point (laughs) like the halfway mark probably it just really felt like I was playing a Resident Evil game, but reading a book instead, because um, they have done kind of the same similar storylines. But I mean, yeah, it was interesting. And I was really glad that it was just crazy English people and not like ghosts. I was really worried it was just going to be ghosts. I didn't want it to be ghosts. 
Um, yeah, <laughs> crazy English people. <laughs> English, we love you. Please know me, me and Martin lived there for four years, four years. But yes, it did play into that colonialism. The, the insanity yeah. that is colonialism was, was definitely played on this. And I do appreciate the fact that it wasn't ghosts. And I think the primary reason why I appreciate that, because it led more into an uncanny situation rather than a haunting, which Haunting of Hill House, uh, Turn of the Screw is what uh, Bly Manor is based off of. Those lean more heavily into the traditional English Victorian Gothic of... Um, there being a ghost, a leftover entity in the house kind of haunting the rest. Uh, so it was fun that it wasn't, it, it headed towards that, like you thought you were being set up for that style of book, only for it to twist and hit, in, hit into the uncanny side of gothic, which I, I love. I could dr- read that. I could drink that all day. I could read that all day. <laughs> <laughs> and then to me, and and. Uh, Martin might be able to back this up a little bit. It also played around with Lovecraft a lot because traditionally in Lovecraft books, you go into these locations and it's kind of racist. And he usually describes these others. Um, And again, usually it's sometimes it's full on like not realistic creatures, people um, like, one book, he has white gorillas that are people that have mutated, but other times it's full on. It's, it's unfortunately black people, full on black people are the otherness, the problem, the issue. And so I kind of liked the fact that this book, which you guys can't see Martin's nodding his head. Yes. <laughs> I liked the fact that this twisted that Lovecraftian perspective where instead of going the outsider coming into an I'm going to quote, quote, other community. Instead, this is a Mexican woman coming into a white community and finding that it has been distorted, it's been changed, that there's some creepy unknowing factor in it that has to be overcome. It's not quite an elder situation, although there are rituals involved, (laughs) but it does lend heavily into Lovecraft. Uh, What do you think, Martin? Yeah, I, I would. I, a lot of the same points uh, that you uh, made, I would. I would agree with. Um, I think the novel, Lovecraftian wise, that I think uh, lends itself most to this uh, would be the novels involving Innsmouth, um, with the fish people. That's usually kind of the, the one I usually think of when I when I think of the, the whole other aspect. But no, I, I agree wholeheartedly. Honestly, a lot of my favorite um, takes on Lovecraft use those same kind of novels and flip them on their head. Um, and and make the the, the quote unquote fish people be the the, the good people. Um, and I've always I've always really appreciated those kinds of takes because it one of the unfortunate aspects of um, Lovecraftian horror is Lovecraft. Unfortunately, he was massively racist. <laughs> like there's no getting around that. And unfortunately, a lot of that is driven really deeply into the novels. And it's 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 kind of one of those things where you have to figure out where you want to kind of take that kind of information where how do you want to utilize that i mean do you just ignore the genre entirely or do you try and make something interesting out of it and, and appreciate um the prose but not the person yeah um or reclaim it i love the reclaiming honestly that's the best thing that's coming out of lovecraft and i would i would identify this novel as almost a, a style of, of reclaiming which part of that is i know the author has written more explicitly lovecraftian inspired things so i know it's something that she's delved into and is familiar with but that reclaiming always actually makes that genre even better <laughs> which i know sarah you haven't i don't think you've read any lovecraft mm, i might have read a short story once that was like two pages long and i that 
I don't know that I finished it or read two pages of it. But yeah, no, have, no prior experience really. You have played the games though, Arkham. Uh, uh, what is it, Martin? Arkham. Uh, the board games. There's there's a number of them. Oh god, what was the one you played? Uh, it was the first one. Yeah, I can't remember what it's called off the top of my head right now. Is it just Arkham um, Horror, or is is that the name yes, of the? Yes. Yes. Okay. No, yeah, the, the the board game's Arkham Horror. Okay, so you played that. You're familiar at least with Half Life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, it's it's the really big one with the clock and the the um the weird descriptions in the worlds on little cards. Oh, it's really yes, it's really hard to describe. Yes. It's got like and you have to work together, not against each other. I don't remember other. the storyline or anything that happened, but yes, I remember a clock. Yes, yep. and, and creatures kept clock. popping up. The elders. Um, so like Cthulhu sure. and stuff. Cthulhu is an elder. Eldritch. Eldritch, sorry. Eldritch God, yeah. yeah. Eldritch God. Um, so yeah, that's that's Lovecraft. That's your closest exposure that I can think of of Lovecraft. I can't even think of TV shows that you might have seen that are Lovecraftian. Yeah, I can't think of any. Yep. So, and since I don't remember much about the game, <laughs> um, it, yeah, it really it really struck home for struck home for you, didn't it? But yeah, I I liked that. And then oh, I love. I don't know how you guys feel. I loved the mushrooms. Yeah, um, I I think it was very interesting, especially when you take into consideration Francis's character and his obsession with plants and all of that. And and I think that was interesting in that he it, it's kind of more of a, a respect for the plant rather than than uh, uh, um, what's the word? I can't think of the word. Anyway, um, but I also really really liked when you read into it and they, they discuss sort of the origins behind this whole ritual and that, and that it was a plant that was being used by the indigenous people, but for the sake of the community rather than for the individual. And then that sort of perversion from the Doyles to, to take what would be otherwise a very sort of sweet ritual and, and kind of use it for their own gains, which is again, ties very heavily back into colonialism and, and, and um, a lot of these different themes that the book are kind of discussing. On it, so this is where the uncanny comes in. And this is, again, I took a class on uncanny literature. It's, it's, I love it. And the intent for uncanny, and that's the intent here, is you take something mundane, something in this case that people regularly eat, but don't always love. You know, this is something you find in high-end restaurants, mushrooms, all that kind of stuff. And you make it questionable. You twist it and you leave the viewer doubting. And in this case, it's okay. Could, if mushrooms were paired with a ritual and a human being, could they control us? Could it, could it be used to control others given their spore, fungus, you know, just prolific ability to uh, uh, procreate in the right, <laughs> not sure that's the right word, but procreate in the right environment. And I don't, I, I love mushrooms. So having this thing be like, mushrooms are bad and gross and and problematic and sarah's making faces i don't know if sarah loves mushrooms or not they're disgusting (laughs) (laughs) and i know martin used to hate mushrooms but now we'll eat cooked mushrooms no i don't i don't like cooked mushrooms i only eat raw mushrooms raw mushrooms okay i've always really enjoyed raw mushrooms but i just when they're cooked they get too mushy i just don't like it Sarah, making such horrified faces. But I think that's the beauty of it being a mushroom is for Sarah, it's very repulsive because she doesn't like mushrooms. So people who don't like mushrooms are just going to be absolutely horrified at this idea that mushrooms can be used to control people and like transfer conscious and allow this gross rotting man to survive. And then people who don't do love mushrooms are like, oh, mushrooms. I like mushrooms, but like 
there are definitely mushrooms out there that are questionable that can kill you. It's not a leap that there could, I mean, it's a leap, but there's not a huge leap that there could be an unknown strain of mushrooms that, that does this sort of thing. So um, interestingly, I, I think even coming from like a biological standpoint, mushrooms are an excellent choice by the author because there actually are parasitic mushrooms there is uh, at least one strain of mushroom i can think of that's on my head i can't i can't remember the, the the species name off the top of my head that will infect ants and and basically it'll there's it'll it'll essentially override the ants body and force it to climb up a tree burst over the top of the ant colony uh the, the trails in order for it to propagate that way I mean, it, it's a very interesting type of mushroom. So it's, again, it's it, like you were saying, it's not that big of a leap from, from this to the, then the next more extreme thing where it, you start getting more into the sort of supernatural, but still kind of, and then it, it, when you also take into the, like the hallucinations and things like that, I mean, is Howard Doyle actually reincarnating or is it more of a, a, a hallucinogenic suggestion and that the people who he reincarnates into, they just think they're Howard Doyle. So there's a lot of area where like, yeah, this might be realistic-ish. The mushroom is, uh, I may say this wrong, uh, Cordycepus. It's called the zombie yes. ant parasitic fungus. <laughs> but yeah, that's that's the mushroom for anyone who's curious. But yeah, I hadn't even considered the possibility that like these are just people hallucinating that they are Howard. I really, I had not considered that as um, like... A possibility. I was like, of course, everybody else is hallucinating because mushrooms can cause people to hallucinate. But I didn't consider it that extreme. What about you, Sarah? Did you take it as them literally being transferred or how you considered them potentially just being batshit crazy? Um, I think it was more along the lines of the actual transference. But then the, what Martin says also does make a lot of sense just be almost like a hypnotic suggestion or something where they start thinking that they are this person. So that then makes me wonder, and I was already kind of wondering it, it's great that Francis survives at the end because I like him as a character, but what if it's actually perpetuating like the problem? What if, if he's already been exposed enough that eventually he thinks he's Howard and that it doesn't actually, like the problem's just, changed locations thriving under a new financially viable family because the implication seems to be that him and uh, Naomi are, are going to be together that they're going to get married um, even though it's not explicitly stated so what if like I don't know how do you guys feel would, would that terrify you the idea that Francis might just eventually change into Howard or do you think the lack of mushrooms will save him I don't think they completed the ritual plus I just prefer happy endings so I mean you could <laughs> take it either way but like yeah they don't have the mushrooms which seem to be a pretty major component so i choose to believe it'll be fine well besides all the trauma that they'll probably have for years what about you martin yeah uh i don't know i always i always lean more towards um dark morbid macabre kind of endings and things like that um but i think Part of the beauty of the ending is that ambiguity where it can be argued one way or the other. I mean, even if you take into account, like it could be hallucination, could be supernatural elements, it could work by either way for either of those scenarios. He could hallucinate into becoming Howard. He could actually have become Howard. He could be corrupted by the fungus. I mean, who knows? 
or it could be a complete happy ending. I mean, it, who knows? It, and that's I think that's that's the beauty of that kind of ending is is it's just sort of up to the the reader to make up their mind. Yeah, that is what I love about Uncanny is you get to the end of it and you really have to decide how you want to kind of take away from it. Do you choose to be a Sarah and have the optimism? (laughs) Do you choose to be a Martin and assume the worst? Or do you be me and be like, I'd be cool with happy, but I'd be cool with worst. (laughs) Because I definitely, as I I got to the end, it was like, man, I... I would like it just to be a happy ending. I would like to think that maybe, you know, they get married and they live in Mexico City and she gets to become an anthropologist and he studies mushrooms and becomes a botanist and that's just their existence and they're happy-go-lucky. And then another part of me is like, well, other people have left High Place before, but they always came back. So will he get to the point that he has to come back? And then will she be at a point that she chooses to come back with him and will they rebuild High Place? so many potential options and i love the, the when you get to the end of these kinds of stories and you can really take the ending wherever you want it to go or you think it could go what about you do you like that sarah do you like that style of ending in terms of the ambiguity i mean if the alternative is everyone dies and no one's happy <laughs> yes i'll take the ambiguity because <laughs> then i'll just be like i'm gonna assume the best yeah i don't actually usually have a problem with amb- ambiguous endings Okay, so I know I've seen, you don't see these, Martin, um, but I've seen Sarah's notes. What were what were you guys' feelings about the more uh, rapey moments in the storyline? Sarah's making I, a cringy face. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that's, that, that was my feelings. It was just, oh, God. No. Do you wish they were completely out of the story, or do you think it actually adds to the story? I mean, it's not like one of those things where it's like a trigger or something where it'd be like, oh, God, this ruined the whole book for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it does make Virgil and I guess Howard. Oh, man, that scene where he kisses her and the stuff that was disgusting. But I feel like, I don't know, I feel like they're already villainous enough. They didn't necessarily need to have all the rapey moments, but... It also was in character, I guess, for them. So, you know, didn't ruin the book. It was uncomfortable, certainly. But then main character is uncomfortable. I don't remember her name. No, no, me. No, no it's okay. So the way they said it in the in the audio book is it sounds like the ending to annoy. So noi and then me. Yeah. Noi me. Um, is is how the audiobook pronounced it. I don't know. I don't know if that's correct in Spanish, but it's not. They didn't say Naomi. It was Noemi um, on the part of the the person doing the audiobook, and I would hope that they would at least make sure that they were saying the uh, first name, the name correct. All the other names, Camarillo, Catalina, uh, they got all of the other the Spanish names correct as far as what I've heard of Spanish, because we are located in um, California, so there is quite a few Spanish words around here, and we, we do have a sense of how they're spoken, especially in the uh, Latin, Mexican Latin context. But yeah, that's how I think that name was said, uh, or how that name Noemi. is supposed to be said. Noemi, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I forgot what I was saying now, but <laughs> something about 
she was uncomfortable, made the reader uncomfortable. It was, uh, it was fine. It was fine. It's cringy. <laughs> what about for you, Martin? I think all things can, oh, geez, sorry. My mic is slowly <laughs> rotating away from me. It's like, not today. (laughs) I don't want to have this conversation. Uh, (laughs) No, I thought, I thought it was well handled. Um, I I don't think it was gratuitous, which I mean, whenever you're dealing with, with that kind of context, it can always very easily go too far. Do I think the book could have worked without it? Sure. Sure. Do I think it added an extra sense of dread and, and sort of uncertainty, obviously, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think it could have gone either way. I don't think it hurts the book, and I think it does add some elements to certain characters kind of to distinguish them apart from each other. I think it was, from what I could tell from the characters, more in character for Howard than it was with with Virgil, but I think the kind of the point was that you never really got a sense for what he was really like kind of played into that very heavily where, you know, at some parts of the book, you're like, Oh, he seems like he's coming around and he might be a halfway decent guy. And then he starts doing stuff like that where you're like, okay, definitely not a halfway decent guy. So. It's interesting. I never thought of Howard as a halfway decent guy. (laughs) No, no, Virgil, Virgil. Oh, Virgil. Sorry. No, no, Virgil. That's what I meant. I, sorry. I said Uh, the wrong name. Virgil. I never, (laughs) I never got the sense of Virgil being a halfway decent guy. It was more, I got the sense that he knew how to present himself in public. And so there were the times when he was interacting with Noemi using the public facing persona versus the actual family persona. I also thought, I thought those moments were necessary where she leans in to the reaction her body is having but is horrified as to who it is and i think that's because in all of this we're also looking at what it means to be a mexican female in 1950s mexico and from the very beginning it sets up that she kind of pushes those boundaries and is testing what her limitations are as a woman in her family by having, you know, continuous changing dates and all of that kind of stuff to the reality of that she's probably not actually had any kind of sexual interaction with anyone because she is very confused and and uncomfortable with how she's responding, not only that it's just happening to her, but that she is having a reaction to it and that she doesn't understand how that reaction works. So I think it's it's very necessary because it actually makes her... It, uh, what am what word am I looking for? It makes her more vulnerable. Up until those moments happen, she's not vulnerable. She's kind of annoying at times because she is so self-confident. And she I don't feel like she's necessarily supposed to be a main character that you fall madly in love with and you want to be them. Instead, you're just like, wow, this is a difficult situation for someone to be in. And then those situations happen. And at least as a female... I am familiar with being in uncomfortable situations where people are pushing things upon me sexually and not like full on like rapey sexually, but like flirting and stuff where I don't actually want it. But as a woman, I don't really know how to safely say, please stop. Don't do that. I don't like that. So I think at least from a female reader perspective, 
I could appreciate how uncomfortable those situations were. And it heightened the horror aspect of this book more that, that loss of self-control. I don't know if Sarah, do you feel that that way? Have you ever, I don't want to say, have you ever felt that way? I don't want to say, have you ever felt like you're being um, vulnerably positioned or even raped, but um, did that, you get that same sense of like connection to the character in terms of vulnerability? I mean, I guess it does make her seem more vulnerable, but it actually really annoyed me that like, that she would be like, that this would be happening and her body would be like into it, even though her brain wasn't. I'm like, no, I don't know. Maybe that's how some people react, but that is not at all. Like, I didn't understand that. I was like, that's not realistic to me personally. I don't have that sort of, yeah. So just to be safe and, and, and be clear, yes, actually, a lot of the times, particularly for rape victims, they do have that conflict of their body has a particular response that they didn't want it to have in that situation. And it becomes very distressing for individuals to not have that control to, to stop their body from reacting. So that is a pretty I don't want to say a pretty common thing, but it is a theme that some victims do experience and would be able to relate to. Whether it's just that they their body bodies have natural reactions to things. And so that that can happen. Some people, not all people have that experience, but some have. And then I, Martin, I will allow you to choose what you would like to say in regards to all of this, if you want to say anything, because since, since you are obviously more of a male perspective at this moment, yeah. not to say that um, men can't be uh, rape victims and have natural unwanted responses. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've I've definitely been in situations where I have had unwanted sexual uh, advances towards me. I've, I've experienced sexual harassment in the workplace, things like that. So, I, you know, it's it's not wholly alien to me. Obviously, it's it's from a very different perspective. Um, it, 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 you don't have that same sort of power dynamic um, than, than you have, you know, the other way around. But like I said, it's not wholly any, wholly alien to me. So I, I kind of I can relate to it to some degree um, through a, kind of the lens that I can see it through. Yeah. So it's so did it, it did it create that same sense of vulnerability for you that Sarah and I could at least identify in the character? Because you yeah, I mean, relate to that. Yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, on, on, obviously, anybody in that kind of situation, you're going to at least get the sense of the vulnerability, whether you relate to it or not. You're going to feel that vulnerability from the character. But yeah, no, I, I can definitely relate to that that level of vulnerability, and 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 I think I think thinking back on it, it has been a little while since I read the book. It did also play very heavily into those themes of like control that the the family was kind of putting on her, and it's kind of one of those. It's a very visceral way of kind of displaying that kind of control. Mm-hmm. But yeah, no, it definitely, definitely uh, could relate to that and, and definitely could feel that vulnerability. And I will say, I think at times that genres like gothic or horror or something like that is an excellent kind of safe space to discuss that sort of thing because it, it helps create kind of like a level of distance that some readers may need in order to develop that kind of connection and that understanding. So like uh, using, it kind of uses an example, Sarah, you've not ever been in a situation that you've felt that kind of thing, but it did allow you to kind of 
create a sense of how vulnerable that would make her. So while you couldn't say, oh, I've been in that kind of position, you could at least go, I can recognize how terrifying this is for a character. And I always think that's kind of key with with books is that you should be able to read them and and be able to maybe learn something from it that you normally wouldn't do. And it's part of why I like Latin American books so much too, is because you do get to learn about a, a different culture than your own. And uh, like in this case, the family dynamics are very different, yet kind of the similar. Because we do have, uh, at the very beginning, uh, Naomi, Noemi, <laughs> being told by her father that she has to do this. She doesn't really have a choice. And then on the flip side, we have Howard as the head of the household telling everyone what to do and they don't have a choice. So I kind of enjoy being able to see those similarities and then how they kind of differ because on the flip side, we then have, you know, with the main character, her father is telling her she has to do something, but he's not ever angry or upset when she kind of like, like pushes back I'm trying to think of a polite way of saying it, cause it's it's like she's not mouthing off at it but 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 pushing back however we then turn and look at ruth who tried to book back push back and she died and then we look at it's not francis uh what is Rachel? no i was thinking of the mother's name francis's mother's name friends no florence friends is it florence i can't remember is oh it? i think it is florence I suddenly, I know it started with an F, but I can't. Yes, it's Florence. Okay, so we then have on the flip side, Florence, who's the only female character that is actually of the Doyle family, and she is obedient. She does exactly, and she doesn't fight back. And I almost think that's a reflection of the expectations of the different cultures in the 1950s. And I could be wrong. Obviously, I am not from a Latin community. I don't know how those dynamics play out, but um, I'm trusting the author being... Mexican Canadian is playing into a knowledge she has, and that while the while the main character is expected to do as she's told, she's allowed to express her displeasure. While as Florence, being English and kind of being raised in a pseudo Victorian setting, is not allowed to have opinions. She just obeys. I don't. I don't know. Do you guys get that from it at all? Yeah, um, I think, interestingly, even taking it out of of the context of the time period and um, even assuming maybe that's not necessarily wholly accurate to what what, what those households would look like in the time period, I think it's, for at least for me, it's also very indicative of of a very loving household versus a very abusive household. Mm -hmm. Um, So while no matter what you're going to have these these, uh, power dynamics between an, an adult and the child or the father and the daughter, where the Doyle family, you know, it's very strict and there are very harsh punishments and there is no dissidence whatsoever. It's just not allowed. Noemi's family, you have a very different approach to it where, where you can push those boundaries a little bit more and it is, it's more accepted. It's more of a uh, taken as a stage of growing up and learning rather than as, as um, pure rebelliousness. Did you have any thoughts on this, Sarah? I know, I know, we're very being very literary this term, this this time. Um, and and I know it's it's not Um, your thing. (laughs) But what were you saying? Oh no, go ahead. Because you said but. I was gonna say I think when I was reading it, I got more of like Martin's point of view out of it, like the loving versus abusive household. Honestly, one of the things I was surprised in this book is that it 
it's called Mexican Gothic, but I felt like we didn't get much Mexican culture in it, quite frankly. Like you could have basically put the setting in any place other than England and it, it you could necessarily, you know, you could practically have the whole story unchanged almost, except for maybe the names. So I just didn't really feel anything unique to setting it in Mexico. So I think, I think for me, um, I'm trying to think of how to phrase this. I think for me, the success in this is that it's not, uh, sorry, I'm trying to think of how to say this. Um, I think it's nice that we aren't having the Mexican culture pushed on us and it is just kind of a side factor because the author is a Mexican Gothic. And so for her, it's not going to be sometimes when non non people from not the same culture will put kind of the extreme perception as to what that culture is. And so I feel like in this, the nice thing is the Mexican aspect of it isn't overpowering or overbearing. Rather it's, it's subtle. It's in how the house is or how the town is built, how she interacts with the uh, medicine woman in the town, how she interacts with the doctor. And those things created that understanding of why it was, different which again i know sarah hasn't had much experience with gothic books that created a different setting for me than typical gothic books particularly because usually in gothic books they're very separated from society and instead in this situation she kept kind of filtering back into it she kept going back to the small town and while this could have been interplaced i think it's nice that it wasn't like it wasn't overbearing it just kind of was subtly there it was recognized that this is just how the author knows things and she doesn't have to prove to us what is Mexican. So I enjoy, I actually enjoyed that aspect of it. I don't, I don't know if that makes sense. <laughs> I would say that kind of uh, piggybacking off your, your points, um, you know, it didn't, it didn't come across as sort of exploitative of the culture. And I thought more, more so than that, it's a nice sort of non alienating level um, for people who maybe aren't familiar with with Mexican culture and maybe would be turned off by not understanding what's going on or or uh, not being able to to really get a good feel for the nuances of, of Mexican culture, if if because honestly, if this book is going to reach anybody, it's going to be it's, it needs to be those people um, who maybe don't know anything about Mexican culture and maybe wouldn't necessarily appreciate it in the same way. But being able to to relate to somebody of a different culture that you might not be familiar with is I think very important um, for people when, you know, as you're developing your, your, your personality and, and your understanding of the world. Um, so I, I feel like it was, it was just enough that you kind of get a little snippet of it, of it, but it's, it's, it's very sort of non-overwhelming and non-alienating for people who maybe don't know anything about Mexican culture. Yeah, I will say, which it's actually part of my book recommendations. I am reading her book, um, Gods of Jade and Shadow. Shadow. You readers, listeners can't see it, but I'm holding it up. This relies more heavily on that Latin American uh, context because it is about a Mayan death god. And it's set in the 1920s and a, uh, yeah, a Mexican woman, um, has to help the the Mayan death god reclaim his 
right to his realm because he's been kind of exiled. That relies more heavily on how Mexican culture plays out. And she did write that one before this one. And I, I think she then could come into Mexican Gothic and kind of pull back that expectation expectation not necessarily rely too heavily on it being heavy and i really think the commentary in this book is how how bad colonialism is (laughs) white people coming in telling (laughs) telling others how to live taking over their minds and just profiting off their silver oh so disgusting (laughs) oh can you can you guys believe that that we as a people really did just have a conqueror mentality and we're just like i came here i discovered this it's mine now (laughs) yeah and yeah and and completely ubiquitous to all of western europe i mean to like far western europe talking like you know the the english spanish portuguese um, french um, the french yes thank you um (laughs) But yeah, just just the complete lack of regard for anybody and anything. Not only that, but like that that level of of arrogance where where you think it's for the indigenous people's own good somehow <laughs> uh, to be completely exploited. <laughs> um, that you're somehow raising them up above their station. Complete nonsense. Like in this um, book, all the miners of, being killed. <laughs> and, and what? I I would say not even not even just killed, but literally being used as fertilizer to feed the mushroom. Like yeah. that's. But what does that say about the fact that when Naomi would go, Naomi would go into the city or into the town and discuss what happened in the past? The townspeople just did accept it as something that it was bad, but it just happened. And they didn't question it. They didn't question why. And how horrifying is that? That we as a people, and I say we as a people because Martin and I do have semi-English ancestry, did just kind of come in and say, this is what you do now. And that did unfortunately train some portions of those populations to just do it. Uh, that, that is, I think, one of the more horrifying elements of this book um, is how accepting the townspeople are of, yeah, that's high place. We just don't interact with them. It's just safer to just keep your distance. No great uprising, no fighting, just stay away. And how horrifying. And how often do people just look at us and be like, ah, just stay away. Oh, I love it. I, I don't remember the context for it, but I have written in my little handy dandy notebook, uh, rules, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point, must be broken. <laughs> 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 Which I feel is so necessary in the gothic horror genre is you have to start at the very beginning and there have to be established rules and then the main character has to break them. Usually it's to their own like self-risk but those rules must be broken if they are not broken then you have not succeeded in writing a good good gothic book (laughs) i know sarah you may you aren't familiar is it did you like the rule breaking in it well i don't know what you mean by rule breaking so like smoking in the house uh going into town when she was disgusting 
Yeah, yeah, smoking is disgusting. She must smell like cigarettes all the time. I hate it when they have characters that smoke because it's all I think about is that they must reek. And yet it it fought the mushrooms. Um, Because the mushrooms hated the smoke. (laughs) Won't fight the lung cancer later. No. But then the, like, going into town when she wasn't supposed to, uh, but I'm going to put quotations, bothering Francis when she was told not to, talking to Catalina and sneaking things in. Uh, did you enjoy those elements or did you, it annoy you that the, the rule breaking was being done? I think it annoyed me that she didn't do it more. <laughs> <laughs> Sarah says, fuck the rule breaking. Throw it all, or fuck the rules, Bro, throw them all out. <laughs> break society anarchy (laughs) okay look and then like in the house at the very end they're like trying to escape the house right yeah and they're like oh we can't go downstairs because there's these two possessed servants or whatever in the way so then they go through this convoluted path like under the house to try and escape when there are fucking windows everywhere and they have chairs (laughs) so if they just break a window and lower themselves out carefully from the second floor they can get away but they don't do that they put themselves in a situation where they get trapped with a mushroom lady and Virgil. And it's just like, why didn't you break a window? Except I want to say there was something in the description of the book that actually indicated there were not a lot of windows and that they were not easy. Just that they were sealed. And the, oh, okay, they were sealed. And, and, but I always got- unseal a window. I always got the impression that there weren't a whole lot of windows in the house. I don't know. Maybe there weren't, but because Victorian houses one in her bedroom. I don't think Victorian houses tend to have a lot of windows, and they would have wanted like a cool, damp environment for the mushroom to (laughs) be a mushroom. They also could have probably fought those two servants with furniture. Yeah, they yeah, didn't. They yeah. ran away like cowards and they got trapped. They almost died. Yeah, but then if they hadn't have killed the mushroom lady, <laughs> this wouldn't have solved any problems. They kind of yeah, had well, to kill her. figure that out later. Would they? Or would Francis have just been called back to the house? No, I mean, that's when they would have figured out that oh. they probably should have done more. But, you know, <laughs> I just don't understand their impulse to get like underground and go through these secret passages that obviously other family members probably know whatever that annoyed me a little bit um yeah i'm trying to think of the reasoning for that i mean obviously francis grew up around the two house servants so he may not have wanted to do them any harm so and maybe it was well, he done left out of in a burning house so <laughs> I, I i don't know i don't know what to tell you I, I don't know the reasoning behind that moment other than to get them to the mushroom lady <laughs> oh god contrived i think there's a uh a tiktok where the song is mushroom hat mushroom hat now i'm thinking mushroom lady mushroom lady <laughs> And for those who can't see, I've actually got like a tiny little dance going. <laughs> yeah, I can't I can't explain away the the whole going under the secret tunnels other than to just uh, try to evade being captured. Maybe Francis secretly knew about the mushroom lady and so led them there so they could figure out the mushroom lady. I, I think I mean, he definitely knew she was there. Yeah. Because the perspective is so controlled, we really, like, we assume Francis is a good guy, but, like, he's rather docile and compliant. 
So at the end of it, I do have to question whether or not it was a good thing that he survived. I want him on a personal level to survive. (laughs) (laughs) It was. (laughs) If only so Sarah would not throw the book away. (laughs) (laughs) It's going to get two stars if he didn't. (laughs) Wow. The rating of this relied heavily on whether or not Francis lived. (laughs) What about you, Martin? Does Does the rating heavily rely on Francis living? Like I said, I, I like my characters when they die. I, I'm okay with them living. It's fine, I guess. But I, I love dark endings. They're, they're always my favorite. Oh, this is like two ends of the pessimistic scale in like the <laughs> weirdest way. We get Sarah. They should have just killed the servants. But if Francis dies, <laughs> and then Martin. And there's probably some logical reason why they evaded that portion, but like it would have been better if Francis does. Would have been better if they all died. Would have been better if all died. (laughs) So we're being caught between this this polar opposite situation of the same part of the spectrum. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my goodness. Okay, let me think here. Let me think. Do I have other notes? Do you guys have other notes? That's not the right page. Oh, I think... So, uh, one thing that I will mention that is a very pleasing traditional gothic element is the medicine making a woman docile and slowly altering her. I love love when that comes into play. I don't know why. Um, The movie Crimson Peak does it too. Uh, I'm trying to think of other, there's other books too, where women are given mysterious medicines. In this, in this case, I'm talking about, I'm talking about Catalina, just to clarify, because Noemi wasn't being given medicine. And I loved the fact that in the end, this almost like docile medicine might've actually been what was helping her all along when it comes from the town and playing with that whole, like, trope <laughs> that trope i liked how it played with that trope that's that's what i'm looking for there i th- i think interestingly the book kind of flips that on, on its head in that i it, it's kind of unclear but i don't think that the family the doyles were actually giving her any medicine at all rather than just allowing the mushroom to take hold and mm-hmm. in the end it was actual medicine that was her saving grace and, and that, that 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 tincture uh whatever it was in the tincture that actually allowed them to get that sense of clear-headedness to be able to actually yeah. move through. And so it kind of takes that sort of classic genre trope and completely flips it on its head and says, no, actually, the medicine was very important. It was very good for them. But we still get the, the again, another another trope that I like is um, the poisonous tea. That's another one. That also is used in, in Crimson Peak. Um, but the poisonous sickly sweet drink which in this case, it was helping the mushrooms be more mushroomy. Unlocking <laughs> <laughs> their mushroom potential. Mushroomy mushrooms. Unleashing their full mushroom potential upon the world. <laughs> I don't know that the mushrooms were added to the wine. That's why I'm like, I can't remember. But like the wine, and I think there was tea she drank as well, that she described, uh, the main character describes as sickly sweet. And the food too. A lot of the food was sickly sweet. Yeah. And that everything 
that comes up a lot in gothic genre when when you're in a mysterious place and you're eating mysterious food and it does have like a offness about it and it actually makes you more susceptible to the situation as opposed to helping you or it's slowly killing you depending on the situation um like in crimson peak it's poison i liked i liked playing with that and putting in that very traditional gothic element um which i helped kind of keep it in its traditional gothic keyness <laughs> um, i got good descriptors tonight we, Mushroomy. We use only technical. We use only technical terms on. What is here. this hand gesture? That's a mushroom. It's a mushroom. It doesn't look anything like a mushroom. It does not. <laughs> um, no, no, that's that gothicness. Actually, that's gothicness. Is this like claw hand gripping? For, for the listeners at home, she is putting her hand in the air and then gripping and pulling downward. And that somehow indicates gothicness. I want to be clear in a horizontal flat palm up fashion, not like a Cinder Cole. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in, in, indicative of a claw, not the other thing. Not the other thing, not the other action. <laughs> oh, look, it's a Murphy. Like a, like a, it's the Daily Murphy. Like a, or- only technical terms technical yeah. terms um, excuse our professional jargon we can't help it i swear i'm nearly to getting a master's i i know words <laughs> and things <laughs> i have an education oh please and, and you're proving sure. it because we're oh. using only technical terms <laughs> yep education uh, Sarah looks just absolutely horrified. <laughs> Am I well, horrified? This is just kind of my face. <laughs> I mean, yes. I mean, you've got a lot of cats around you. I'm, I'm a little worried about your cat numbers. Uh, three. <laughs> Only three. Yeah, they're just everywhere. They're they're <laughs> kind of popping up, getting more numerous as time goes on. Oh, I would, fourth I would. one entered the room. <laughs> Which I one? Oh. Dorian. Pokemon Dorian. Here. Yes, please. <laughs> uh, he uh, he hasn't come up on the bed. He's staring into the bathroom like a okay, creeper. Girl. You want to know who needs his... Well, okay. <laughs> I was going to say, you know who needs his own gothic story? Dorian. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, the name of the cat's based <laughs> on a fairly classic book. And he does a good so, job of epitomizing the weirdness oh, he because he was just, he's just staring into the empty bathroom. Just, just. He, he is weird and a bit pondering. of a ass. <laughs> and really wouldn't be afraid to kill us all for his own pleasure. Very Dorian Gray. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> Mild sidetrack between the hand motion and the cats. <laughs> Let me let me see if there's anything else, any other elements worth discussing, or if we will start to head into our wrap up. Yeah, I think that's it. Because really, I just got to the end of it, and I found the ending to be very intense but very satisfying. That last like, well, the last about fifty pages really starts to escalate quickly. <laughs> Which when you were like, I stopped, and I have fifty pages, sixty pages left. I was like, Sarah. <laughs> keep going <laughs> and then you waited like oh well i knew shit was about to go down and i wasn't ready 
So, okay, that leads yeah, actually two weeks. Uh, that leads me actually to the next what a question I was kind of curious about. So, books that require you to have to step away because you are anticipating how intense they'll be, is that a sign of a good book or a bad book? Depends on what happens so, when I come back to it. <laughs> um, I would say that I have never walked away from a book that I was reading. The only time I walk away from a book is if I just don't like it. You like DNF it. Good. Yeah, it's like it's just not good. And that very rarely happens. I'm, I'm normally pretty pretty adamant about finishing a book that I start. Um, mm-hmm. I, But I think that also plays into the fact that I, I really... I just like stories. I like morbid stories, but I do just like stories. I'm, a, I'm perfectly happy with a happy ending as long as it's written well. So I have no, I don't usually go into to books with predispositions about what I want to happen or um, or even when I start to like characters, I have no predisposition about whether they want, I want them to live or want them to die. I just kind of want them to fulfill their story, which is I think one of the reasons why I like when characters die, because it's very succinct that this character lived its done. full potential. It's done. They lived their done. full potential. You, you, it, They served their absolute purpose in the story, and there's really nothing else that could be done with it. And I feel like one of the reasons why the quote-unquote happy endings, a lot of the times I feel like there was more story to tell, and that's usually why I tend to stir away from those. I always feel like there could have been more told. But getting back to the, the, the topic at hand, I, I don't really ever walk away from a book um, so, so it's what's kind of funny and uh, outing Sarah here just a wee bit. I know for a fact that Sarah has a tragic tendency to pick characters that then die. <laughs> Primary <laughs> example that I'm thinking of is Kylo Ren. <laughs> okay, but he's not one of my favorite characters, and I didn't even really. Oh, I thought he was one of your favorite like... Star Wars characters. I mean, I know Poe. You love more. He like, might be in the top 10. I don't okay. know. Well, that's the example that comes to my mind. I know Sarah has a, like, bad habit of liking the characters that, like... It's because I like the villainous ones. Or the side characters who can be, you know, who are expendable. <laughs> um, so that's what happens to them. They get expended. So I can appreciate why you, like, had to step away. I just wasn't sure if you saw that as a sign of a good book or if you see that as a problem when you have to step away from a book for a while before coming back to it. So, you know, I uh, don't normally do that. Oh, so this was actually like one of the first times that I did because I was just like, oh, my God, if this is another shitty ending, like Blythe fucking manner, I'm going to be pissed. And so then I was just like, I just didn't want to deal with it at that specific moment. Usually I'll just kind of plow through or if it really goes horribly, I'll just. I haven't, yeah, I'm trying to think if there's many times where I've actually just abandoned the book altogether because at a certain point, once you've sunk enough time into it, you don't want to just give up, but I've definitely finished books very angry before. Well, <laughs> as we know in the last podcast episode, I have finished books angry before. Um, <laughs> And I think there have been books that I've, I have stepped away from, but I eventually go back to, um, there is only, okay. There is only one book that I can think of that I, I got 50% in and went, no, nope, nope. And, uh, it was actually an early arc that I got by the time this episode will come out, it'll let the book love come out, but it actually comes out next week. And I just know. And I think actually, Sarah, you asked me about this oh. recently on Goodreads. Yeah. Yeah. That one. 
Yeah, I, I know that one hard. There's another book that due to the author being problematic and it was a difficult read. The first book was a difficult enough read, even though I enjoyed it. Um, then information came out about the author that made them problematic. So the second book I have currently DNF'd, I may go back to it. But yeah, I'm like Martin. I just, I power through, even though I don't like the book um, to get to the ending because I've already invested effort into it. Um, so there aren't too many books that I do not nope. Um, but I, I hit my first like hard no. Like I was forcing myself to the 50% point and I got to like the culminating moment and went, no, no, I can't. This is a big major moment and I'm pissed off. And it wasn't even like the action of the moment. It was the writing. <laughs> <laughs> like the action of the moment, the big reveal that was happening, I was very into and I was like, oh, maybe this will pick up. And then the writing choices, I went, F this. I can't. I can't. I can't have fought 50% of the way just to, like, no. So, <laughs> slight tangent there. But in this case, it turned out good for you, Sarah, which makes me happy. I don't know if that leads to your rating. Which, actually, here we go. What was your rating of the book, Sarah? I gave it four stars. Okay. This is, this is solid. I mean, solid. I think on Goodreads, that means really liked it. It was more like a, yeah, that's pretty good. But, you know, definitely more than like three stars. So Yeah. I gave it five stars. I, I love this book. That's not clear. This is my second time reading it. I will probably reread it again at some point in the future. Full five stars for me. What about you, Martin? And this is on a scale of five, I assume. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um. Mm, I hadn't really thought about it. Um, you could be out of peaches if you want. <laughs> as long as you explain the rating. How yeah, many peaches would you give it? A, it's still going to end up being a number of something, so yeah. it, you might as well just actually just pick a number. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I would say like a like a three and a half to four. I thought it was a really solid book. Um, I I have I'm I'm pretty snobbish with my my books. I, I a lot of my very favorite books are really really like high end highbrow like super intense concept books. Um, and so this is like, it's it's a good middle of the road. Like it's a good read. Like it's not going to be a challenge for anybody reading, which is nice. Um, I know some of the books that I've introduced to people, they're like, I couldn't get past the first like 20 pages. It's just too dense. I don't, I can't follow what's going on. Um, so I think it was like for a fun read, like a fun, just sit down, knock it out. It was very fun. I liked it three and a half. Well, and, and so I'm going to share a little story here. Cause I remember the first time I gave it to you to read, you read it and I was like, oh, how did you like it? And you were like, it, it it was okay you're like it it was you know a gothic and I, I actually had to explain to you or mention i i remember distinctly saying i'm like that's the point because it's a mexican gothic and you went fair you know what right my my expectations were maybe a little higher than they were supposed to be given that it tells you exactly in the book what it's or the title what it's going to be um i don't know if that ended up altering your your rating of it after that conversation but no, I think, like I said, I, it, it was a good, fun read. I enjoyed it. Yeah, I, I always have really high expectations when I'm going into books. Um, but I'm, I, I, it's never like, I'm not disappointed when a book doesn't live up to those expectations. Um, I'm always blown away when they meet them. But, you know, it, not every book needs to be Dune. Like, it, it, you just, that's, it's unrealistic. You can't. But for listeners... 
that that gives you an idea for martin a five-star read is doomed <laughs> i mean oh, I it has doomed. its flaws or, or yeah. is it is it actually a five-star read is it is it truly a five-star read am i making an assumption here that dune is a five-star read for you i'd have to reread it i haven't read it in a couple of years um okay so what is a five-star i think the asimov foundation trilogy those are all five-star books. They're insanely well-written, insanely well-researched. And Dune would definitely be up there. Um, I, I have very few, like, five-star books that I, like, I have very few books that I'd be comfortable saying, this is a masterpiece. Okay. Uh, what about you, Sarah? Just, for context, what yeah. for you is a book that's a five-star read? Um, I mean, it doesn't have to be a masterpiece. I just... <laughs> really like it and like would want to reread it again sometime in the future i guess do i need to give an example of a book yeah yeah they kind of help any listeners have context because i realize we've never really discussed like how each of us break down our ratings well i mean like uh let's see so like life after life Mm mm-hmm Right, that's the yeah, that's like my favorite book. So I would give yeah. that one a five star. Probably not the best writing, but I love it. Or like Good Omens, I love that one because of the way the author's writing style. That was really good. Or like what Anathema, about, and uh, or uh, Anathem, uh, Murder Bots. That's been a five star read oh for you, my right? God. Yes. <laughs> okay. See, I started reading that after I took a break on Mexican Gothic. So then when I came back to Mexican Gothic, I was like. He's not well, a murder bot. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's like I was enjoying it more before I got into murder bot, and I was like, "Oh man, I love okay. that five stars so, on all of those." So, so, so far we have established that Martin, it has to be a masterpiece to be a five star. Sarah, it has to be a passion book for it to be a five star. And I feel like a trash monster now because I'm like, "A Court of Thrones and Roses, five stars. Visible Life, Valley of the Roof, five stars." <laughs> I'm the most likely to give out a higher rating. You want a book. Like four or five star is, is going to be like, like for me, like a three is like, it did what I expected. A four star is I'm pleased, but there were things that could have been done, done better. A five star is like, ah, give me, give me more. I'm a little gremlin. Well, see, <laughs> That's actually kind of interesting because, like, for me, a three-star would be like, that's a good book. I would recommend this book to somebody else. That's a good book. A two-star is like, somebody probably enjoys this book. I don't enjoy this book, but I feel like somebody enjoys this book. And then, like, a one-star is like, this is bad. This is just, this is awful writing. Why is this a book? (laughs) Why is this a book? If I DNF it, it's a one-star. That's the only time I give a one-star is if I DNF it. Two is a... Really? Yes. What what did you give Sandcastle Empire? A two star. Again, it's like the worst book we've ever read. (laughs) A two star. A two star is I finished you. (laughs) I finished you. You get two stars. So you give them pity stars. Okay. (laughs) Three stars is you did not exceed my expectations or, uh, you know, um, it's not bad or good. It's 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 the middle ground. It's legible. It's halfway between one and five. You are middle ground, and four is I liked you, but there could be improvements. And again, five stars give me more. <laughs> what about you, Sarah? What's a one star? 
Sandcastle Empire. <laughs> She's calling out names. <laughs> One star is, yeah, something that either is terribly written or I just, I read it and I'm like, I can't believe I'll never get these hours back. Um, <laughs> or, 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 yeah, it's just, or if I don't DNFs? finish, but. So, which, which uh, I realize, I keep saying that, did not finish. DNF is did not finish. So what about a two star? Did not fuck. What? <laughs> what? <laughs> wow, I would hope that's Sarah. your standard for all of the books. <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't know you did that kind of thing, so Sarah. <laughs> you want to borrow some of my books? <laughs> <laughs> Note to self, don't borrow books that Sarah enjoys the smell of. Questionable oh. results with Shame those you've books. lent me so many. <laughs> okay so what's a two star for you sarah um like where i get through the whole book and it was like not terribly written um like they tried there was effort in it it's just it didn't work for me okay and then three star it where it's like, oh, it seems like a pretty good book, but it's not really my favorite, or it was kind of boring, or, you know, something just was missing from it. Okay. So, yes, we've established Martin has the highest caliber of starring system. Sarah is See, distinctly in the middle, and I am a trash monster. <laughs> yeah, I don't even know you if I have a the... star. You get a star. Everybody I don't I don't even know if I have the highest caliber, more so that I have the highest range. Because, like, for me, a three is, that's a good book. I liked the book. Whereas for Sarah, a three is like, yeah, it was okay. Like a three for me, I'm like, yeah, that's a pretty good book. Four, I'm like, wow, that's a really good book. Five, I'm like, damn, that's a really nice book. Well, okay, so that's what I mean is, is you are not as generous with your stars. Yeah, you have a yeah. higher, like, you Stingy. need a damn book to be yeah, a five okay, book. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Sarah is a, if it goes above what I expect, then we might consider a four or a five. And me, I'm like, oh, you made me feel something. So I love you. <laughs> I don't need anything more than emotions. <laughs> so, um, okay. So then as we are finishing up here, working towards that, do you have any books that you recommend, Sarah? if people like this book. Mm, okay, so as a person who never has has never read gothic before, mm -hmm. to my knowledge, I'm very bad at genres. I don't... Yeah. Um, if they have spaceships, I, I usually realize they're sci-fi, but <laughs> anything else, it, it's hard to say. And, and, um, and Faye are high fantasy, or fantasy. Yeah. <laughs> if they have pointy yeah. ears. <laughs> Honestly, if there's magic or pointy ears, it's like, okay, this is probably fantasy, probably. Um, I also hate to break it to you, but sometimes they're sci-fi without spaceships. Well, yeah, but yes. then she won't recognize it as sci-fi is what she's saying. <laughs> or if there's, like an, if there's an AI or something, I'd be like, okay, sci-fi. Um, so when I was reading this, it did remind me... Uh, I don't actually know how similar it is, though, because it's been years since I read it, but it reminded me of the book Annihilation by Jeff Vandermeer, just mostly with the uncanny setting. Mm -hmm. And then, again, two things that are not books, but very strongly similar to this. Um, you get the Resident Evil games, Resident Evil 5, which covers eugenics and like colonialization and everything, and Resident Evil 7 which is about trying to escape a house where the monster is 
controlling fungus and mushrooms. So yeah, that's what I'm, that's the only similar things I can think of. Hey, that's fair. And we can always have recommendations that aren't books. People do enjoy other media. Um, I have a couple of recommendations and then I'll let you, Martin. Or Martin, do you have any recommendations I should ask before I yeah, start? Yeah, uh, I, I don't know why it popped into my head. Um, so again, I'm a huge sci-fi nerd. Um, and it just sort of, when I was thinking about the book, kind of reminded me some similar themes um, and sort of like deep mysteries and kind of like uncanniness. There is a book by uh, Robert Heinlein called The Moon is a Harsh, harsh Mistress. Jesus. The Moon is a Harsh Mistress. Uh, it's a very interesting. I think your whole AI thing kind of popped that into my head. Um, there's, a, there's a theme with AI in that. It's a really, really good book. Very fun read. Okay, so that's uh, that's your your book recommendation. If people liked Mexican Gothic, okay. So I have I have a couple of options, both uh, books and not books. And I apologize. This is this is my favorite genre. So I have I have options. <laughs> I have options. Uh, okay, so the first one that I highly recommend is We Have Always Lived in the Castle by Shirley Jackson, which we will actually be doing in a later episode. And that book questions the sanity of the family. It also has kind of a mysterious secret from the past that has to be kind of figured out. And then it also offers lots of uncanny elements. Really, anything by Shirley Jackson is going to give you those uncanny elements. Uh, Haunting of Hill House would be another example of a Shirley Jackson story. Though I know, Sarah, that was not a huge thing you loved. <laughs> we Have Lived in the Castle leans more towards this family dynamic questioning as opposed to the ghost kind of thing. And then I haven't read it yet. It's in my to-be-read list, but it keeps being brought up as an example is uh, Rebecca by Daphne du uh, Maurier. Maurier. And the reason why it I recommend it is um, it's a literary classic and it's a gothic tale about an unnamed heroine who marries a widower and he and the household are haunted by the memories of his first wife, which really does lead into the whole weird Mexican gothic mushroom lady. <laughs> i'm dancing i'm doing the mushroom dance real quick and then if you really like the author of mexican gothic so sylvia uh moreno garcia i'm midway through it i haven't completely finished reading it yet but gods of jade and shadow shadow um which this is 1920s exploring mayan folklore about a death god it is a little bit of a drier read it's a little bit harder um higher end read in terms of kind of being invested in it, it's not necessarily an easy plot through. Then if you like the like mystery combined with the historical fiction kind of nature of Mexican Gothic, Invisible Life of Addie LaRue, and I apologize if there's noise, the cats are being chaotic, by V.E. Schwab. That's another one that we're actually going to be doing. And then explores the impossibly long life of Addie LaRue, where no one can remember her after they look away from her. And again, it has a mystery that has to be unraveled as you're reading it. And then... If you like Latin American literature, uh, Julio Cortarzer, any of his pieces, he does a lot of short stories. I love his axolotl short story, <laughs> uh, which I don't know if I've brought it up to Sarah, but Martin is familiar with my weird love of this axolotl story. I have yep. dreams of one day having an axolotl because of this story and their yeah, I eyes. Think you mentioned it. Yeah. I won't give away like the whole point of it, but it's about a guy who goes to, uh, I think it's in France, um, even though he's a Latin American writer, uh, goes to a museum and comes face to face with an axolotl. And because of the axolotl has a short or has an existential crisis, um, which actually the short story is available 
online for reading. So I will link it in our recommendation page so people can go and read it if they'd like. And then finally, because I had a lot of recommendations, <laughs> I highly recommend if you've not watched it, which I feel like most people have to be under a rock to have not watched any of his pieces, Guillermo del Toro's films. So Crimson Peak, The Shape of Water, and Pan's Labyrinth. Because when reading Mexican Gothic, I could picture the way he films things. A lot of the description, it easily felt like something that could have been coming, like the the play with colors, like gold and everything. So if you want to get a sense of like visually what Mexican Gothic could look like, I highly recommend those three movies by him because they are much more his kind of uncanny style stuff. And that is it. I have no other recommendations. <laughs> I've given you a small pile. So, any last thoughts from either of you? No. I thought, um, last little thought, I thought the author played really well with um, descriptors and the environment and setting up um, really creative ways to set sort of a more mysterious, darker tone, like the fact that the Doyle family house doesn't really have electricity. Mm-hmm. which is such a easy way to be like, hey, it's really dark in the house and set up nice candle scenes and things like that. But she played a lot with, with various different uh, easy means of setting up some, some really creepy kind of undertones. Without relying on the norms. Instead of just constantly, exactly. she wandered down the dark, mysterious hall. It was, there were no lights on. In fact, she almost like avoided the dark mysterious hall trope because the main character would wake up from sleepwalking so we didn't get that eerie wandering down the halls it just like she's here yeah so yeah the the only mysterious wandering down the hall thing i can think of wasn't really that but it was um the walk back with virgil is is Mm -hmm. kind of like the closest it got and it was more creepy because virgil was there than it was um (laughs) anything else but (laughs) almost was like please just walk back in the dark by yourself just don't go with it virgil Okay, so on that note, on that note, our next episode will be discussing Six of Crows by Lee Bardugo. So the next two episodes, we will be doing that and Crooked Kingdom. Uh, Sarah, it looks so excited to be revisiting this because <laughs> it will be a reread for I and Sarah. So you just got to get through two books, Sarah. Two books. You can do it. <laughs> like two weeks of reading a book I don't like particularly I know but (sighs) that's what we're doing and then we'll be doing red white and royal blue which definitively Martin will be back for red white and royal blue so if you guys enjoyed him he will be back go get the books go be ready to listen to his amazing voice um and he will be appearing on our tiktoks so if you haven't started following us on tiktok definitely do because hopefully we will be having some really fun content coming out. And then you can see Martin's pretty face. Know what he looks like. Put a face to a name. You'll never see Sarah's face. She'll be a mysterious <laughs> enigma. <laughs> a, a sad, well, not a sad voice. Oh, excuse me. Excuse She's me. She's just so sad. <laughs> the hauntingly grumpy persona of Sarah will always be a mystery as to how she appears. Is that is that accepting acceptable descriptor, Sarah? I mean, I guess it's better than sad. <laughs> I know that's not the right word. <sighs> okay, so our outro and intro music is by Grant Newman and is called "The Battle of the Nile" from Epidemic Sound. 
Don't forget to like, rate, and subscribe to Bookpile Banter on whatever platform you listen to your podcast. Currently, we are on Spotify, Amazon Music, Podbean, and Google. We'd love to hear from you on any of our social media platforms, such as Instagram or TikTok. You can find us at book underscore pile underscore banter. <laughs>